Welcome to the Decode 6 podcast, where we take your questions about carbon and ecosystem services and match them to the experts with the answers. I'm your host, DJ May. And today we're taking a look at a carbon market case study. Way back in 2007, Alberta, one of Canada's 13 provinces, instituted legislation to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from large emitters, so those whose greenhouse gas emissions exceeded 100,000 metric tons per year. Part of that legislation included an option for those emitters to pay for emissions reductions in other segments of the economy, including agriculture. The conditions were ripe for a carbon market. So what can we learn from Alberta's experience with carbon markets? Here with me to answer that question is our expert, Sarah Sellers. Sarah is a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign studying agricultural and applied economics. Her research interests span production agriculture, farm management, and agricultural finance. She currently researches the adoption of conservation practices by farmers, nitrogen use on farms, and agricultural carbon markets. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me today. Great, we will jump right in. So I'm looking for a little bit of background. How did carbon markets get started in Alberta and how are they structured? So um, the first thing to keep in mind is that there's a different policy in, environment in Canada, and this is what created this opportunity for agricultural carbon markets there. So um, they do have a cap and trade policy and a, a carbon price, pricing scheme, which made this all possible. And it's important to keep in mind that the U.S. doesn't have these things, so it is a little different there. But the reason I wanted to bring attention to this is because this is an example of a functioning agricultural carbon market. And I do, I do think there's a lot we can learn from them and, and what they've done, even though maybe it's it's not perfect, but um, it is something we can learn from and, and look at. But basically, there was some legislation introduced to regulate greenhouse gas emitters. This These large emitters who emit over 100,000 metric tons per year, uh, they had four different options. They could either increase their efficiencies and, you know, start emitting under the target. Uh, they could pay a carbon price set by the province. They could purchase offsets from other facilities who are maybe more efficient and produced under their targets. Or they could pay for emissions reductions in other segments of the province's economy. So this is kind of what created that that market for agricultural carbon markets is that fourth option, which allowed payment for the in the agricultural sector for for their emissions reductions that were being generated. Great. So what does the structure look like? How did they set things up? Where did they go with that fourth option? So what the structure is like is once this all kind of evolved, there's kind of two sides. There's the company side and the government side. So initially there were 10 companies who were doing this. So one challenge with agriculture is that emissions reductions are are pretty small. So uh, it's really hard for a farmer to go to a company and, and sell those directly to them. So these companies kind of came in to, to aggregate those so they could combine all of these farmers' offsets and then uh, go to these large emitters and, and make the deal happen. So initially, there were 10 of these companies who were doing that. Now there's three left in Alberta who are doing this, which from what we spoke with a company up there, they said one of the reasons for the loss of companies is some of the co- companies just didn't have the modeling capabilities that that these companies did. And also this suggests some competitive pressure too. So uh, those companies are Trimble, Farmer's Edge, and, and Radical, and they're, they're still currently involved in that there. 
they serve as aggregators. So they, they purchase the, the credits from the farmers and then they go to these uh, large emitters. They say, hey, we'll sell you these credits below the, the government price uh, for offsets. And then they negotiate that. And then so then the company's saving a little bit by not having to pay that fee to the government. The aggregator is benefiting and then the aggregator takes that money and, and shares it with the farmer. So that's kind of how that's split. Then there's also the government side of this. So uh, the government came up with these specific protocols, which allow for these agricultural carbon offsets to be generated. So there's very specific protocols and policies that have to be followed. And if a farmer does all that, they get everything properly certified through the government. Then that goes into a a system managed by the government. So then each offset is getting a a specific number and it goes into this uh, market registry. So everything's really carefully verified and and tracked by the government there in Alberta. Okay, great. So just to summarize, you had this scheme, the government set a price that these companies could pay, right? Like a certain carbon price. Exactly. And the fourth option is like, okay, we can buy credits for slightly less than this government price by getting them from farmers, right? That's sort of the competitive competitive advantage of the fourth option. Yes. So that could be any any industry. So from other some other segment of the Alberta's economy. So one of those segments is agriculture. So that that is kind of a piece of that. And then it's the company's not going to pay the same amount they would pay to the government. If that was the case, then they would be kind of indifferent. Uh, but if they can get that for even slightly lower than what they would pay to the government, then they'll it's a win-win for them. Perfect. Okay. So that's kind of the government and company side, but how do farmers and landowners fit into the picture? What do they have to do to participate? So to participate, they need to follow the the specific uh, protocols laid out by Alberta's government. So there are four different protocols that they can, they can follow. And those are the conservation cropping protocol, they can reduce greenhouse gas emissions from fed cattle. They can distribute generated renewable energy, or there's a protocol for anaerobic decomposition of agriculture materials. So uh, the most popular one was the conservation cropping protocol. So this would be like switching to no-till or things like that, practices like that. So for example, if you didn't own the land, then you had to get like your landowner's signature to be able to participate and things like that. So they had to kind of follow all this regulations. They weren't allowed to till. So I believe it was up to 10% of their field if they had some sort of drastic need where maybe they needed to till uh, part of their field for some reason, but it, it couldn't be more than 10%. So there was all these kind of protocols outlined as, as part of that. So if they, they followed that, they turned in their records, they got everything certified, then, then they could participate. Excellent. Okay. And so that was in 2007, this legislation was passed. And now, you know, it's gone from 10 programs down to three. Um, Is it still active? Is that still something people in Alberta can do? It is. Um, One challenge is that the conservation cropping protocol was phased out in December 2021. So that was the most popular one and you can't participate in it anymore. So I don't know how that's affected things. But the idea is once a certain adoption threshold is reached. So once, you know, 40% of people are using no-till, then you don't need to provide the incentive anymore to encourage people to adopt no-till. So that's kind of why that protocol goes away after a while, because 
it's kind of nice because then there's, you kind of know when things are going to end. One thing with the U.S. carbon market, I mean, nobody knows what, what the future holds, so it's really challenging. So, But if you know that conservation cropping protocol is is going away, then that's the end of the program. So I'm not sure exactly what the enrollment's been like after that has been phased out, but it would be, be interesting to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's a great segue because I'm curious, what can we take away? I know we have a totally different regulatory system, but what can we take away from that carbon market setup in Alberta and maybe apply to what's going on in the U.S. now? I think the main thing we can learn is, one, their certification and verification process uh, because things have been, there's no standard system here in the U.S., so things have really been varying from company to company. So Maybe you rent land and you want to sell agricultural carbon credits from that land. Uh, some companies require an attestation of right to sell carbon from the landlord. Others have a box on their on their form that says check here if you've received your landlord's permission. So I think kind of this variability in, in contracts and in programs is, is a challenge that we're facing here in the U.S. with agricultural carbon credits. I think we can really learn a lot from how Alberta has dealt with some of that prob- those problems and how they've standardized things, how they certify things through their government to ensure tradability and quality of the credits. I think that's a really interesting thing we can learn. Um, another thing I, can, I think we can learn is we can look at what's happened over time with their program, so how they phased out that conservation cropping protocol. That was from 2007 to 2021. So that kind of gives us a time frame to go off of for things here in the U.S. So if we have people saying, how long is this going to last? Well, we can see how long this lasted there and, and kind of use that as a, as a reference for us. Yeah, great. No, it's good to think about that. I mean, this is just sort of the beginning of a lot of these programs here. And so I'm sure they will change over time. But here's my one last bonus question for you, Sarah. Sure. Um, if you were talking to a farmer, I guess what kind of advice would you give them if they maybe had watched how this unfolded in Canada and were thinking about what's going on here in the U.S.? I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting here compared to what happened in Alberta is the the split that the farmer's getting. So from what I've heard, um, the farmers here are already getting a larger share of the, the value of that, that credit. So if we look at like the percentage of farm income in Alberta that's coming from the credits uh, there was a paper a while back ago that estimated that somewhere around 1%. So it's for them, it, it's not a huge amount of money. It's not a huge amount of their farm income, but but maybe it can help fund some of these conservation practices that we know are good for the environment, but that are expensive to adopt, such as cover crops. And even uh, switching to no-till can have some, some costs sometimes uh, if there's a yield, slight yield decrease uh, or things like that. So it's not a it's not going to be you know a huge portion of the income but maybe it is a good good incentive we can look at what's happened there and kind of manage expectations another thing i've been telling farmers a lot is this agricultural carbon markets is just one piece that's kind of evolved out of all of this larger ecosystem services discussion so maybe in the future especially with this, all this funding from the USDA, maybe there's going to be even more opportunities in agricultural carbon markets. It's just going to be a piece of that larger ecosystems uh, services opportunities. So uh, it's definitely one of the first things to emerge, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be the only thing to emerge. So I would tell them to keep their eyes open, keep looking for more opportunities and keep their eye on the news and, and following this and 
if they're interested, maybe maybe try out some of these new new opportunities. Excellent. Yeah, that's definitely a theme that I've heard from from people talking about these programs. Like it's not going to be your main source of income, but if you are curious or want to adopt practices, like it's a good way to offset a little bit of the costs. So any yeah. final thoughts, Sarah? I mean, I think it's really exciting because we know um, there are agricultural practices that do have benefits for society and the environment. Um, anything that benefits water and air quality is is good for for others too, not just for the farmers. So this, this, these opportunities really excite me because hopefully some of that work that all of these farmers have been doing for a long time, you know, no-till and uh, working to improve their efficiency is getting more attention and, and getting recognized. So I think it's it's really exciting time and I'm, I'm really excited to see what evolves out of all this here in the, in the U.S. market. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here and serving as our expert today. Thank you so much for having me. If you're looking to dig a little deeper into Alberta's carbon market or some of the related research that's been published about it, check out the show notes. And if you have questions about carbon and ecosystem services, come visit us at decode6.org to learn more. We'll see you there. Thank you.